having this S curve as this model of what growth looks like, it allows you to start the conversation. And so often people just don't know where to start it. And because it is very, very simple, it's easy to have the conversation. Where do you think you are in your growth? Do you think you're at the launch point? Do you think you're in the sweet spot and mastery? If you're at the launch point, you probably need support. If you're in the sweet spot, you need some focus because you're getting lots of opportunities. And if you're in mastery, you probably need some type of challenge so that you can continue to grow. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. In this episode, you're going to hear from Whitney Johnson one of the top 10 leading business thinkers in the world as named by the highly respected Thinkers 50. Whitney is an expert at something leaders desperately need to do better, growing their people to grow their organization. She's got a brand new book talking all about it called Smart Growth, which is about something that our listeners may not be familiar with, something called the S-curve. But before we get there, Jason, let's introduce Googleization Nation to our newest segment, The Perfect Labor Storm. On each episode, we're going to focus on just one disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe everyone should know. Let's start here. 25 to 60% of all workers, according to Gallup, McKinsey, Aspect 43, are feeling burnt out. 19% of workers are miserable, according to the new Gallup State of the Workforce report. 70% of employees do not feel their employers are doing enough to help them. Only 15% of companies think burnout is a problem. Employees who experience burnout are six times more likely to quit. That may be a solution or a hint to some companies of what they need to do to stop the flow. And burnout is costing organizations $322 billion in lost productivity. Ira, I've got to say, even though those are some sad statistics, I absolutely love this new segment of the perfect labor storm. And what it indicates is we're right in the middle of it. And you predicted it 20 years ago. And sadly, right now, it feels like this has become a finger pointing game between executives and employees. We have executives blaming workers and calling them lazy. We have workers telling executives that they won't work in toxic work environments anymore. And I just read yesterday, this was on LinkedIn, where some business leaders are actually hopeful that we go into a recession to force people to come back to work. Now, if that is not one of the most asinine things I've ever heard, I don't know what is, that you would want things to get worse to force people to come back, that's not a recipe for people making their best contributions. And at the center of this labor storm is the idea that we need to seriously upskill our labor force for the future of work. Because we're going to get to a point where AI and technology will hopefully one day take over some of the more repetitive and mundane jobs. And the numbers for how we're doing in this regard with upskilling and learning and development, they're pretty sobering. Across the world, we're spending around $130 billion each year on learning and development programs. And most of the research is suggesting that only about 25% of it is judged to be effective. So if we want to get serious about overcoming this perfect labor storm, one of the things we've got to do better at 
is learning and development. And that's why I'm excited that we have Whitney with us here today to share the secret sauce for effective learning and development. And before we get there, just want to remind our listeners that you can earn SHRM credits for just listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. You can do that by going to rebrand.ly forward slash GGG SHRM credit. You can also go to Googleization Nation and subscribe to our newsletter and be updated on all the podcasts. And please, if you haven't done it already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast channel uh, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization and rate and review one of or more of our episodes. So this seems like a perfect time to bring Whitney on with us today. Just a little bit about her. She's the CEO of Disruption Advisors. She's a world-class keynote speaker, a frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's corporate learning, and an executive coach and advisor to CEOs. I don't know how she squeezes all that in to a typical day, but I'm excited to learn how. So without further ado, let's welcome Whitney Johnson to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization Show. Hello, Ira. Hello, Jason. Hey, welcome, Whitney. I do want to mention this. You've got a great, great podcast disruption yourself. I've been listening to a couple of those episodes. You have wonderful guests on there, amazing guests. So I highly recommend everybody go up to uh, Disrupt Yourself podcast. Thank you. And it's fun though, right? It's fun doing a podcast. Oh, it sure is. And we get to talk to people like you, Whitney. You've got a brand new book called Smart Growth. We're living certainly, as you heard, in, in very disruptive times. You've had a number of disruptions throughout your life, uh, personal <laughs> disruptions. Let's talk about your life journey, your career journey, because here you are talking about entrepreneurship, working with some of the largest companies in the world, but you started as a secretary. Yes, I did. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll do a Reader's Digest version for those who know what Reader's Digest is. I actually studied music in college and I, I played piano. And I didn't, even though I studied music, I didn't want to be a musician. I think sometimes maybe some people can relate. You do a major, it's what you kind of plan to do. Your parents wanted you to do it. But by the time I graduated, I really wanted to do something else. And I had gotten married. My husband was going to get his PhD at Columbia in New York. And so we needed food on the table and musicianship doesn't tend to put food on the table. So I had to go out and get a job. I didn't really have very much confidence because I was a woman really the only jobs that were available to me were working as an executive assistant or really as a secretary. And so that was my first job. I was a retail assistant to a stockbroker at Smith Barney, 1345 Avenue of the Americas. And something though that interesting happened for me as I started that job is I would go to work every day and I, across from my desk, there was this bullpen of young stockbrokers who were aspiring masters of the universe and saying things like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this is a great investment. They'd say things like, throw down your pom-poms and get in the game. And at first I was a bit offended because I was a cheerleader in high school. But after hearing them say this over and over again, every single day, I had this, this epiphany that I needed to throw down my pom-poms. So I started taking business courses at night, accounting, finance, economics. And then I had the good fortune of having a boss who believed in me, who allowed me to jump from being a secretary to a banker. And for those who have been in financial services, that just does not happen very often, which put me on a track to be an investment banker. So I, I'm working on Wall Street as an investment banker. I then get basically disrupted because my boss gets fired. 
And they probably would have fired me too, but I had good performance reviews and just had a baby. And so they moved me, they shoved me into equity research. And that turned out to be a career maker. I was very good at picking stocks. I became an institutional investor ranked analyst. I did that for about 10 years and I disrupted myself again after coming across the work of Clayton Christensen, who was a professor at Harvard Business School, and eventually left Wall Street to become an entrepreneur, but then connected with Clayton and co-founded an investment firm with him and his son, where we were investing in disruptive innovation. But then back in 2012, so now 10 years ago, I made the decision that I really was more interested not in the momentum of stocks, but really the momentum of people and these frameworks of disruption and the S-curve that we'll talk about in a minute. I wanted to apply them not to investing in products and services and companies, but in people. And so today I'm the CEO of Disruption Advisors, and we have a a tool that allows you to see where you are in your growth, where you are on the S-curve, and then we wrap coaching and, and consulting around that. I guess just to kind of summarize, though, I think the important piece as you're asking this question is that I would not have known this back in the late 80s, early 90s, But that initial notion of, I think I could do something more than be working on Wall Street as a secretary was really the first time that I disrupted my perception of what I thought was possible. And then as you've heard, I've just disrupted myself over and over again throughout my career. And now that's what I get to write about and talk about and coach around. I love that. And you have this quote that your goal now is spotting the momentum of a person. Mm Mm-hmm which is very similar because I work a lot with growth mindset. Jason works a lot with growth mindset. And I've spent the last 25 years on helping people hire better. Hiring managers and companies hire people for a fixed mindset. They fix them for what they know, what they've accomplished, what they did in the past, and then expect them to do that over and over again. Don't take any risk. Don't take any changes. Don't disrupt your life. It's like you're at this mastery level, which you, I know you'll talk about, but just stay there. Don't do anything else with your life. Don't grow. Don't change it. Just fulfill that. It's so backwards because, especially in today's market where there's more demand than there is supply, you have to hire people with potential. You know, Ira, it's interesting because I've thought a lot about growth mindset and you obviously have as well. And this idea of hiring people who want to grow, but I hadn't put it as succinctly as you just did, which is this, that we hire people who, if they were to do the job that we hire them to do, we would be asking them to have a fixed mindset. And yet we get upset when they get on the job and they don't want to grow, even though we've set them up not to grow. I love how you just encapsulated that so, so well and so crisply. So Whitney, I've made reference to the S-curve a few times, and you related it to learning and growth, just as we were talking about. You know, ultimately, most people want to really master. They want to do what they do well. But there's a number of different stages, and especially with, as Jason mentioned, we need to upskill and reskill people. We need to give them the confidence. We need to teach them how to grow, to change, to become better. Can you first explain what a, an S-curve is, and then talk about some of the stages that we're going to move through and how you discovered all this. So the S-curve is something that has been around for decades. It was popularized by Everett Rogers, who's a sociologist back in the 1960s, 1950s. 
and he used it to look at how groups change over time and how they adopt new ideas. And in, in particular, he was looking at the adoption of a new type of hybrid corn by farmers in Iowa. And what he discovered is that initially, even though the corn was drought resistant, it had a higher yield, it was easier to harvest, people were very resistant to adopting the corn. It took five years to get to the first 10% of all the farmers. But once you saw that initial wave of adoption, then over the next three years, the penetration or adoption went from 10% to 40%. And so he posited that new ideas or groups change in an S shape, that initially it's very, very slow. And then you reach this tipping point, which Malcolm Gladwell popularized, and you move into hypergrowth. And at some point you reach saturation. Well, we were using the S-curve at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Christensen to figure out how quickly those innovations would be adopted so that we could make investment decisions. I had this aha, this insight, because I was already thinking about disruption and personal disruption. I had this aha that we could use the S-curve to help us understand how individuals change. So not groups change, but how do individuals change? How do we learn and how we grow? And so I reimagined this for us to think about individual personal growth demystifying this process. And at its very basic, there's three major stages. Your brain is running every time you start something new, start a new job, since we're talking about this idea of recruiting right now, you start a new job, your brain runs this hypothesis about what is it going to take for me to be successful in this job? And initially, you're at what we call the launch point. So this is that initial phase. And you're making lots and lots of predictions, many of which are inaccurate. And so because they're inaccurate, your dopamine, this chemical messenger of delight, it drops. And so it feels overwhelming and discouraging and frustrating and you feel impatient and you're trying to map new territory, your brain's making memories. And so cognitively it's taxing and emotionally it's taxing and your identity is in flux. And so this experience that you have, even though there's a lot of growth taking place because of all that's happening and how much work it is, you experience it as being very slow. And so it helps explain why is it really difficult to start something new? So that's the launch point part of that curve, that part that we talked about with the farmers where adoption is very slow. But then as you continue to make these predictions, they will become increasingly accurate. And so you tip into the sweet spot, that steep, sleek back of the curve. And this is the place where it's exhilarating. Things are difficult, but they're not too difficult. They're easy, but they're not too easy. You have this sense of competence and autonomy, and you feel like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And so here, what you're experiencing is these spikes in dopamine. Your brain's rewiring, and so it just is, it feels really good your identity. It's not yet who you're going to be, but you're having this sense that you're going to make it to the top of the mountain. Here's what it looks like. And so growth not only is fast, it feels fast. So that's the second major stage. So you've got the launch point at the sweet spot, and then you've got mastery. And this is the place where the model, the predictive model in your brain, you've figured it out. You know what you're doing. But because you're no longer learning, you're only getting a little bit of dopamine. So it's kind of flatlining. There's nothing new to see because you figured it out and your identity transformation is complete. But because you're not learning, you experience this as growth being slow. So you now have this model where dopamine's dropping, it's spiking, it's flatlining. You've got slow and then fast and slow becomes this very simple visual model 
for you to think about what growth looks like, for you to understand the emotional arc of growth. And when you understand that, it allows you not not only to demystify the process of personal growth, it helps you decode talent development. It facilitates recruiting like we were talking about at the outset. And it also helps you with retention because you understand where people are in their growth. And if they're no longer growing, then you find a way for them to continue to grow if you want to retain them. I think a lot of times, myself included, we often think of growth as being something that is just strictly linear. And we look at it and we think, okay, if it's not just going in an upward linear progression, then I'm failing in some way. But what you're helping us understand is that there are going to be some setbacks along the way, and that's anticipated. We predict that. The other thing you shared that I think is really important for our listeners too is that whenever something happens that prevents us from growing, don't necessarily internalize that, that it's your fault, quote unquote, that there are a lot of variables that have to be right environmentally in terms of instruction, curriculum, the way that we teach, having the right support group and resources around you to grow. But it sounds like you're doing a lot of work to help reframe that to think in terms of, you know what, let's take a look at the environmental demands first to make sure that we're equipping this person with what they need to grow. And I love that your S-curve helps people understand where they are prepares them that there's going to be some rough patches along the way, but also puts some responsibility on organizations to make sure they're putting those right things in place. What have you noticed in your work are some of those pieces of the recipe to make sure that organizations are providing the right pieces to support growth on the S-curve for people? So initially having this S-curve as this model of what growth looks like, it allows you to start the conversation. And so often people just don't know where to start it. And because it is very, very simple, it's easy to have the conversation. Where do you think you are in your growth? Do you think you're at the launch point? Do you think you're in the sweet spot and mastery? If you're at the launch point, you probably need support. If you're in the sweet spot, you need some focus because you're getting lots of opportunities. And if you're in mastery, you probably need some type of challenge so that you can continue to grow. So that's a starting point is it just allows you as a manager, as a colleague to have that conversation. The other thing that it does is acknowledge the fact that you you have to do it by yourself. So you, Jason, Ira, I, we have to climb the S-curve by ourselves, but we can't do it alone. There are weather patterns that are going to affect whether or not you're able to climb that S-curve. And so acknowledging that it's you have to take responsibility, you are agentic, but as a manager, you have a lot of control over whether or not you're making it possible for people to grow. Is it sunny? Is it 70 degrees? Or is it snowing in a blizzard? And so people feel like they can't make it up the mountain. And the way I visualize this is this notion of keystone species. We talk a lot about a keystone species is is something within an ecosystem without which something can't grow. In a pond, you need lily pads, for example. And so I think about this as we oftentimes think, okay, what do I need in order for me to grow? But I really encourage managers to flip it and to recognize you have people that work with you for whom you are the keystone species. What are you doing to help the people grow? Again, it's a both and they have to take the initiative to grow, but you as a manager also create the conditions wherein the people that work with you can grow. I love that, Whitney. And what are those stumbling blocks typically? Why do you think that it's been such a challenge for us as a species to really tap into helping people learn and grow, especially in the business world? 
It's a great question. I think that one of the reasons it's a challenge is that we are by definition very focused on ourselves. It takes tremendous maturity and growing up as a human being to start to focus on people around us. So I think that's your starting point. I would also say that even when we get to the point where we are thinking, okay, I don't want to just grow myself. I do want to grow people around me because I think that's also in us as well. We do have an impulse. We do have an instinct to help other people grow because that allows us to feel a sense of community and connectedness without which we could not survive. I think where we bump up and where the challenge comes in is that so often if I as a manager am going to help a person on my team grow they're not growing in a vacuum. Their growth by definition disrupts me in some way. It either means that I need to support them and get them training to grow. It means that I need to allow them to focus and possibly say no to me on one of the projects that I asked them to take on. And perhaps even more challenging is it may mean that they get to be as good at something as I am. And so they could potentially disrupt me. They could potentially displace me, or they will no longer do the job that I hired them to do as, as what Ira talked about at the beginning. And so we mean to help people grow. It goes back to this idea of growth mindset. I mean to help you grow so long as it doesn't mean that it disrupts the growth that I want to do or the growth that I don't want to do. And so it really requires us to get to that point of understanding that truly at our most fundamental level, if we don't help people grow, we're not actually in the long run going to be happy. But that requires a lot of higher order thinking. Um, but anyway, that that's how I would think about it. I love that, Whitney. It makes me think back to my work as an educational psychologist. Many times parents would come to me and they want their kids to grow. But many times the conversation was about Actually, here's the things you as a parent need to change in order to help your child grow. And it was kind of a, a light bulb moment many times for parents. And what you, you shared just there, I think, is probably a light bulb moment for many leaders and organizations, too. Right. Oh, I want my children to be educated and read books every day. Oh, how many hours of TV are you watching and not reading books? Right. Oh, I have to change. Yeah, that can be a real challenge for us. And if we take this back to the workplace, as soon as you said that, I, I can think of managers, especially now, because every time somebody leaves, it takes weeks or months or, or sometimes even a year to replace that person. They don't want that person to grow. They don't want to send them to training. They don't want to help them move on, get that promotion, because then they have a position to fill. And that's been going on for years. That, that may have nothing to do with that individual not wanting them to happen, but they don't do it because it would encourage it. And then it's it's self-interest, it's self-preservation. And the grand irony of it all, and I'm sure you've had these conversations as well, and we've seen this with our tool, is if a person gets to the top of an S-curve and they are bored and they are not motivated, you think if you don't help them grow or do something new, that somehow they won't leave but they will. They'll either get super demotivated and start getting complacent and possibly even become toxic because they're bored or they're going to leave. And so if you, we can flip it, so our self-interested piece of ourselves is say, okay, I've got a choice here. They're going to leave either because I let them go, they leave on their own, et cetera. So why don't I have them leave and become a brand ambassador? Have them say, this is the best boss I've ever had because they helped me grow. 
or I can have them leave and feel like this person squashed me. And so if you can zoom out and think about what's the long game that we're playing here, it makes it a lot easier to make those decisions that in the short term are sometimes a bit painful to make. We're living in an inpatient society. We need new people, fresh blood. We need people that are engaged as Gallup's report. We're really well behind that. You know, only 9% of the workforce are engaged, not highly engaged, but engaged and thriving. Only 9%. This is the, the worst part. 57% are not engaged and not thriving. I mean, the numbers are, are, are really tragic. There's no place to go but up. It's so interesting too. There's been a lot of talk about the great resignation. And I've said, and I think this data really supports this idea, is that one of the things that happened with the pandemic is that people were forced to do something different out of necessity. And in that process of being pushed off our pre-pandemic S-curve, we discovered a lot of things about ourselves. And so we said, I want things to be different. I want my life to be different. I want to thrive. And I believe actually that I can because I just did this really hard thing and I did it better than I thought. And so I think if we as employers understand that it's not so much that people are resigning from, but that they want to thrive, that they're aspiring to something. The reason I get so excited about this S-curve of learning is because it's so simple. It allows you to have that conversation of, well, tell me where you are in your growth. Do you feel like you're thriving? And how can we create conditions wherein you can thrive? And on the one hand, it feels very complicated. But on the other hand, I think it's really quite simple. How can I help you grow? And if, you, if I can't help you grow and you can't grow here, then you shouldn't come work here. But I'm sure that if I'm committed to this, we'll be able to find a way for us to hire people that want to do what we want them to do. And there, there will be that match. Where I started that question was, we're impatient. We want things to happen quickly. I've sort of identified that my S-curve must be about 10 to 12 years. because I've had changes in careers. And it's like, never did I feel that I was in complete mastery of it. But I achieved a level and maybe the dopamine, that enthusiasm just dropped. It just fell off. So chemically, I reached that mastery level and then I moved on. So I went from being a dentist to not being a dentist and starting this business. And I went through this business and then started a couple other side businesses. And here I am now at another point in my life, looking at changing the direction and where's most of my time going to focus. So I figured out my S curve must be, you know, 10 to 12 years. And then it takes me another three years to actually make the move. I and mean, maybe that's starting another S-curve simultaneously and starting to build that momentum and getting comfortable with it. When you're going into companies and they're saying, listen, it's going to be a slow start. We're going to need people to reskill, upskill, learn a new way to do things. There's a time span and people are going to have to be tolerant. Is there any range you can provide to say, well, you're going to do this when you're on this curve, it's three months, it's three years. So I, I do have a general rule. I thought it was interesting that you said that your sort of life cycle or growth cycle is about 10 to 12 years. I suspect without knowing the details, you found ways to elongate that. But I use as a starting point the 10,000 hour rule, which I know there's some debate about how accurate it is, et cetera. But if you use that as a starting point and you're working 40 hours a week, then that would suggest that launch point six months sweet spot, two to three years, and then mastery six months to a year. Now, 
that is a general rule. And so you, you don't want to sort of live and die by that. But what that helps you do is I was just actually on a call earlier today with someone who said, you know, I've had someone in this role for about a year and it feels like they're not gaining any momentum. Well, that's a pretty good indication that something's off. It may be that they need training. It may be that they're not getting support or it may be that it's not the right S curve for them. And so if you use that as a starting point of if after six months, you're not seeing this person really gain momentum, then you may need to do some tweaking to make sure that you can calibrate it. So it is either the right curve or they move somewhere else. But by allowing yourself to say three to six months, it's going to feel messy. It's not going to feel good. So what can we do during those three to six months so that they can gain traction so that they can have those dopamine hits that will allow them to have some wins to feel like they're eventually going to move into the sweet spot. Simple things like, okay, your job over the next six months is just to get to know everybody in the organization so that you actually know how to get things done. Because it doesn't matter how competent you are from a domain expertise standpoint, if you can't get anything done because you don't have the relationships you need to do it, that's going to be a problem. So you can have these simple goals of every day, I want you to go meet someone and find out what they need. So they're getting that dopamine hit at the launch point that will carry them through until they can move into the sweet spot. But I would use as a starting point, six months, no momentum, I would revisit and recalibrate. It's so funny. I'm sort of smiling here. You're right. I absolutely elongated that. In fact, while I was somewhere stuck on my 1S curve doing dentistry, which again, I left that 27 years ago, I became really, really good at golf. And then I realized that golf was just a distraction. I didn't really get any more dopamine being on the golf course. So I stopped golf and then started something else. So yeah, there, there are distractions and diversions, but obviously if I had understood this S curve before, probably could have made some smarter moves faster. It's interesting, Ira. So one of the things I think about is that your, your life is a portfolio of S curves and your career is a portfolio of S curves. And one of the things you were saying is, Okay. I invested in becoming a dentist. I went to school for a really long time. You said, all right, I've got this portfolio. I'm at the top of the S curve here. I've got to find a way to entertain myself. So you probably were in the sweet spot with your family, but you took up golf that allowed you to, from a portfolio perspective, feel like you were more in the sweet spot, but eventually you realized, okay, I've gotten better at that. Still not happy here. It's time for me to do something differently. That's how I would assess it. A portfolio of S-curves. I love that. It's a great way to, to look at that. And that's certainly what we talk about with transferable skills and, and multiple careers. A study from Australia identified, you know, it used to be you had one career and it was a series of, of different jobs. They came out that now it's 17 careers over a lifespan and in five different industries. That's interesting. That seems like a lot, but I guess I'm not dead yet. Well, if you think about even in technology, and it depends who, who you're looking, in tech, it was like, oh, you're going to work in Silicon Valley. However, you work in a bank, work in insurance. You can work for a manufacturing company and be in IT. So uh, again, I, you know, I, I think it's how you slice and dice the, the data, you make data do whatever you want. But the trends of thinking about different jobs within the same industry or within the same organization, now you can have... Now it's going to be different careers using that same inf that knowledge that you had. And that's essentially what you did and what I did and Jason did to some degree. I mean, you know, coming as a psychologist, you're not putting people on the couch every day or having people come into your office. Uh, you're in a tech company. 
It's so exciting, isn't it? I love that we can just do all this S-curve jumping, that things have changed so much over the last few decades. And we've got to take one more jump here because we're almost at the end. I love this conversation. We definitely have you back and continue this for sure. One of the questions we like to ask near the end is, was there something we should have asked, but we didn't? Yeah. Sometimes when we're at the launch point of a new curve, we don't like uncertainty. It feels really uncomfortable to not know what we're going to do. And it's messy, as we talked about. And so one of the things I would encourage people who are listening is to not be impatient to, to what you said, this idea of patience, to be patient at the launch point, allow it to be messy, allow yourself to be uncomfortable so that you don't jump into a career, so that you don't jump into a job that ultimately isn't a good fit for you. So you think about product market fit, sort of person S-curve fit, because you just want the pain of the uncertainty going away. And so I guess, I don't know if this is a question, but I would just encourage people who are listening of just allow yourself to be at the launch point of a curve and just not get impatient because sometimes in our impatience, we make rash decisions and then we have quarter life and midlife crises as a consequence. So I don't know that that's a question, but that's my answer. We would have asked you the question and you would have given us that answer. So perfect. It it worked out just fine. Whitney, we close each time getting to understand a little bit more about who you are and what you do. And I'm going to turn that over to Jason. He's going to run our lightning round. Are you ready, Whitney? We're going to do about three or four questions here just to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level. How about let's start with the lottery. Let's say that you hit the lottery today. What is the first thing that you're going to do after getting the jackpot? I would pay 10% in tithing to my church. How about uh, this one? Let's say that you're thinking about some of those high school classmates. What would be some things that they would be shocked to see about Whitney Johnson now? You know, it's such a good question because part of me thinks they would be shocked to think that I'm doing what I'm doing that I have a business, that I'm a CEO of a company that I think in my mind, they thought I was just going to grow up and get married and be a stay-at-home mom. Very cool. And this ties into what you shared earlier in terms of your journey. So I've got to ask you about some music since you've got a degree in music. Is there a favorite band or musician that you have? So easy. Stevie Wonder. That's the first Stevie Wonder we've had on the show, Ira. It is. And that fits very well because it's on my, he's on my playlist. Yeah, I love Stevie Wonder. I love his music. He's so brilliant. And then, you know, today, sort of this generation's version of Stevie Wonder is Jacob Collier, who's like an unbelievable musician. And you've just given a name drop of an artist that I need to check on Spotify now. Thank you. Whitney. And last one here. What did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up? So I would say that when I was really young, like when I was eight or nine, I wanted to be a a concert pianist. But by the time I'd gotten to high school, and I I don't know if this is this happened to a lot of women, but I didn't I didn't really have a know what I wanted to be. I just had this vague notion that I would get married and have children. So I didn't really have an aspiration. That's why I'm sometimes surprised at where I've ended up. I've got to ask one more because you are a smart growth expert literally the expert in this field. So we've got to ask you, what is something for you that you've tried to grow in that was more challenging than others? So when I was young, I wanted to play tennis, but I didn't 
end up getting very good at it. I tried out for the tennis team one year and didn't make it. So I kind of gave up. So just a few weeks ago, I decided that I was going to, when I was on vacation, I was going to take tennis lessons during vacation. And I had these aspirations of how good I was going to get (laughs) after the many hours of instruction. And I definitely improved but I did not move off the launch point of that S curve as fast as I wanted to, <laughs> but I'm still really glad that I did it. I love that. In my mind, when I go out on the court, I still think I'm Andrea Agassi, even though there's no similarities there whatsoever, but things that we aspire to. I love it, Whitney. Well, before we let you go, we want to make sure that Googleization Nation can get in touch with you. And so what are some ways that they learn more about the work that you're doing? Ira was so generous at the outset of talking about our Disrupt Yourself podcast. You can go listen to that and that gives you a great sense and window in terms of how how I think. Another great option is our newsletter. You can sign up for that whitneyjohnson.com forward slash newsletter where every week I talk about some personal application of personal disruption and I respond to every single one of those emails. But if you really must get in touch with me, it's wj at whitneyjohnson.com. My two takeaways. One was portfolios of S-curves. I think that's brilliant. I mean, we're stuck on education and learning and building our resume. What does a resume look like if it became a portfolio of S-curves? Self-preservation as a blocker for true growth. When Whitney shared that internally, I just was like, holy moly, that's it. That's like the holy grail obstacle, honestly, of why growth doesn't happen in organizations. Many of us say that we want to help people grow, but when it gets down to it, the many fears that Whitney brought up, like, oh, if I help this person grow too much, they might move past me in terms of mobility, that self-preservation, those things fall into place. That was a really big eye-opener for me. And I think we all have to ask ourselves deep questions about why we do what we do. And if we are going to say that we're about helping people grow, then that means we also can't be about self-preservation. It's about wanting the best for that person and giving them the things that they need to help them on their journey and their portfolio of many S-curves that they may have, some of which for a time might be with your organization, but many other S-curves may be with others. But if you want them to be a wonderful brand ambassador and recommend other people to come work for your organization, you have to truly be invested in their growth and help them on that journey and push the self-preservation aside. That was a big takeaway for me. And that fits so well into when we're looking at what keeps people. People are throwing money at people. Throwing money to an employee at another company is a reason that may attract them. But what can you do to keep people in place? And two out of the top three is recognition and a strong relationship with their manager. And there are so many managers that don't give the recognition. They're not giving the feedback, partly because it may be unintentionally. We don't want that person to grow. If I help them grow too fast, then they're going to leave and they quit. And then I have an open position and that's more work for me. But that problem's been going on for a long time. But Whitney helped put a picture to that, a story to that and looking at that timeline. And it's so valuable. But I, I think what we learned about the S-curve today and the growth and the mastery and that it's not just hearsay, there's science behind this. I mean, they can tell that what stage you're in and, and maybe that'll be a pre- pre-employment test in the future. We'll measure people's dopamine levels <laughs> to see where they are on the learning curve or in schools. Maybe how do, how do we keep people engaged? 
But here we are at the end of another episode of Geek Skeezes and Googleization, Jason. We are. It always flies by. And so until next time, Googleization Nation, please, if you haven't liked or subscribed to the podcast on your favorite platform, please do so. And we would also appreciate it if you would do a rating or review. I'm Jason Cochran signing off until next time. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans.